Praise God. That was awesome. That was awesome. Uh, in your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Um, we'll get there in just a second. So this is the first Sunday of the month. Um, this is going to be the beginning of an institution of us partaking in a sacrament that Jesus Himself told us to partake of. Um, and since this is the first time that we're going to do it as a church, I just thought that it would be advantageous if I were to do a specific teaching or specific message on communion and at least how I look at communion and the way that communion impacts my heart. Uh, man, I just, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, the songs this morning and even, you know, what Faith prayed about the love of God, about the love of Jesus. And that's really, in the simplest statement, that's really what communion's all about. It's about the love of God. I mean, if you broke it down in its most simple form, you could say communion is an opportunity for us to just partake in that love of God. Just a gentle, simple reminder of that love of God. You know, Psalm 23, um, you may be thinking, what in the world does Psalm 23 have to do with communion? Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, there's various places throughout the Bible where it talks about the God being a shepherd or Jesus being the good shepherd or the great shepherd or the shepherd of the flock and, and several instances. But here David cries out, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Makes it personal. And then it goes on, it says, I shall not want. Or you can also translate that, I shall not need. Why? Because the shepherd takes care of my needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Then He makes a profound statement. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. And that's really the reason I'm referencing Psalm 23 is because even in that instance, David could have been talking about a million things. But for me right now, after the resurrection, looking back, I can read that psalm and I can say, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I can look in that and I can say, what is that table? It's the feast of the Lamb. It's communion. It's prepared in the presence of my enemies. It's prepared even before I get to be in the presence of my enemies. Anytime, any circumstance, anywhere we get in life, communion's always there waiting for us to come before God. And I'm not just talking about communion with the sacraments and the elements. I'm talking about communion in the general sense of us being able to come humbly before God and say, God, I need you. I need your love right now. I need you in this circumstance. So when I look at that, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. That's what's on my mind this morning when we look at communion. You prepare and have prepared a table for me. You've set the table. You've done the work. All I have to do is sit and partake of it. And then he goes on and he says, He anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Beautiful. Beautiful. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night the Lord Jesus... I'm sorry, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some of your Bibles may say, This is my body, which is broken for you. There's two different manuscripts for this passage. I prefer the one that says, My body, which is broken for you. Because 
this is my body which is for you, or this is my body which is given for you, it, sure, it says it correctly, but when it says this is my body which is broken for you, it implies what the body was given to. We'll go to that in a minute. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Some translations say eat and drink damnation on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. In communion, there's two elements, essentially. There's the bread and there's the wine, or in our case, there's the Welch's grape juice. But these two elements represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And that's kind of what I want to take a minute, and I want to, I want to focus on this. And this is where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. Since we have communion to partake of, I'm not going to be super long. The bread represents the body of Christ which is for you, which is given for you, which is broken for you. And if you just take just a minute, and if you would, just take just a reverential minute with me and just walk through what this body went through. And we'll just begin at the Garden of Gethsemane, which followed this Passover meal. Jesus goes and He begins to take the weight of the world on Him, literally. The weight of the sin of the world on Him. And it puts Him in a place of utter isolation, separated from all of his disciples, completely alone. He asked them to pray for him or to wait and watch and pray, and they fell asleep, completely alone. And the stress and the emotional agony of what he was experiencing was so powerful and so excruciating that not only did he begin to perspire, begin to sweat, but his pores opened up and his sweat was filled with blood, or as King James says it, his sweat became as great drops of blood. Blood literally poured out of his pores because of the emotional duress that he was under. Judas comes as a friend, betray him, and brings with him the guards, and they come with swords and clubs and spears as against a thief in the night. And we know that there was some type of violent skirmish for Peter cutting Malchus's ear off. So undoubtedly they put him in shackles and in chains and led him to the way to the high priest to be judged. So you know that his trip from the garden to the place of judgment was not a pretty one. He was probably beaten and drugged and knocked down along the way. And he gets to the hall where the high priest is waiting for him. And he's ridiculed and he's mocked. They blaspheme him. They call him a liar. They slap him. They pull chunks of his beard out. They punch him in the face over and over again. 
then when they actually get to the judgment hall and he's awaiting judgment, the soldiers take thorns and they form it and fashion it in some kind of makeshift oval or circle. And these aren't just little thorn bushes like what we see, but the thorns are actually like an inch and a half long, many daggers. And they don't just gently set it on top of his head, but they put it on top of his head and they push it down where it cuts his skin and blood runs down his face. And they mock him some more, spit on him some more, beat him some more. And they take him out, they tie him up to be chastised, and they whip him with a cat of nine tails, which is basically just a handle with rope tying it to shards of metal. And they beat him until they'd cleave flesh off his back. If it was Jews beating him, they would have beat him 39 times according to the law, but this was Romans beating him. So there's no amount, no way of knowing how many times they specifically hit him. The Bible actually says that he was beaten more than any man ever. His visage was marred more than that of any man. It actually says in some translations that he was beaten to the point of unrecognizability. And then you have the Via Della Rosa where they gave him the cross and had him carry his own cross. And he's got this rugged, rough-cut cross. I don't think they took the time to sand all the splinters off. And those open wounds, not to mention that he hadn't eaten by this time since the day prior. And he had sweat his blood. If any of you have ever given blood, you know how much energy that can drain from you. He was completely exhausted, beaten beyond the point of any man. I think the only thing that was keeping him alive was the will of God. And he was forced to drag this rough-cut cross in the heat of the day, dragging it, unable to stand, falling down, no doubt splinters rubbing those open wounds, so that they eventually had to pull another man in because he was physically unable to carry this cross all the way to Golgotha. And they get there, and they pierce his hands and his feet with great nails. They found historical bones of people that have been crucified and the nails are literally 10 to 11 inches long and about 2 inches in diameter. And they put that through his hands and through his feet. Then they, the thing is, and I'll, I'll be gentle with how I say this, we always picture and we have paintings of Jesus and he's got some kind of robe on and we, well, that's, you know, that's a pretty picture and it's gentle to the eyes, but the truth is, is the crucifixion was supposed to be the pinnacle of humiliation. So in light of ears listening, those paintings are inaccurate in what his attire looked like. Even after he died, I'm sorry, before he died, when they're still mocking him and they're saying, if you're the son of God, then come down from the cross. Thieves mocking him. You know what he does? Two things. Forgives the thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then, as they're still mocking him, and beriding him. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. And then even after he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, even after he died, to confirm his death, they pierced his side with a spear. Those are the things, when we sit here and we talk about the love of God, I think sometimes we read over these passages and they're just words to us. Our Christianity has such a tendency to be an academic Christianity. Like, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. Do we, how often do we honestly, how often do I honestly sit back and really think about what that entails? How brutal crucifixions were. Crucifixions were brutal. Historical accounts of Christianity are almost unreadable. 
because of how these Romans treated these prisoners. One thing about a man that was led away to be crucified, the moment that he was sentenced to crucifixion, he gave up every right. People could literally do to that person whatever they wanted. And you can use your imagination there. Whatever they wanted and they wouldn't be (coughs) sentenced for it. That's what Jesus did for us. And why did Jesus do that for us? Why did He surrender Himself? See, my favorite moment in the entire Bible, not favorite verse per se, just my favorite moment, historical moment in the entire Bible is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's because at that moment, Jesus said yes. Knowing everything that was about to transpire, everything that was about to happen to Him, all the suffering, all the pain, all the agony, Hebrews says that He did it for the joy that was set before Him. For that joy he endured the cross and despised the shame. But it was literally in the garden when he looked up to the Father and he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That was the prayer that when Jesus said, knowing everything that he was about to endure, he said, yes. He said, I'll take it on. I'll do it. For the joy that was set before me, I'll do it. I want them. Father, you've given them into my hand and I'm not going to let one of them go. I want them. And why did He do it? Because of how He loves us. When we don't even begin to understand. And sometimes we take communion and we take it so casually or so flippantly. Do you understand that when we are taking communion, literally as we just read, when we are taking communion, we are literally doing it in remembrance of the sacrifice and the death that Jesus died for us, of the penalty that He paid, of our substitutionary sacrifice. We're literally acknowledging and proclaiming His death until He returns. That's what we're doing when we take communion. And sometimes we'll just chuck back a cracker and swig a grape juice and go on our merry way. When this is supposed to be a moment that we come before God and we say, Wow. I cannot even fathom what you endured for me. The second element of communion is the blood of Christ. And there's several aspects to this. But this is the blood that Christ shed for us. And it's important that we always acknowledge that it was shed for us. Not spilt, but shed. Spilt has the connotation of an accident. It was no accident that Jesus died. Some theologians say that it was a backup plan. It was not a backup plan. It was the foremost frontal plan of God's desire that Jesus Christ would die for us. Even as early back as Genesis, he said, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll bruise your head. Even as far back as Genesis, God already had the redemption in mind. Even before that, it says the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. This was the blood that was shed for us, not spilt, shed, given for us. It's the blood of the new covenant. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, they would offer a sacrifice. They had two goats. One goat, they would lay their hand on the head, and they would do what theologians call expiation. And it's basically a horizontal transfer. They would transfer the sins of the people to the goat. That goat would be released into the wilderness. And then they would offer and sacrifice the other goat, on the altar as an offering to God, they would take its blood one time a year into the holy place and then into the most holy place. And they would put that blood on the heavenly mercy seat before the presence of God and they would wait to see if God had accepted their offering, if they had fulfilled the law in every manner according to the design and the establishment 
and the order that God had set before them. And they would do that every year. And if anyone had anything messed up, if they offered strange incense, they would be struck dead. If the high priest entered the holy place any other time than that once a year, he was threatened with death. If they didn't wash in the bronze laver before going in, they would die. Repeatedly, 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 it's reverence, reverence, reverence. Reverence, reverence, reverence. Consistently. Honor, honor, honor. Understand who you're coming before. Sin can't stand in this. Jesus, as our great high priest, and Barrett touched on it in Hebrews, the verses right before what he read, go further into that. But as our great high priest, Jesus took his blood and he went into heaven's mercy seat. Heaven's most holy place, the throne of God, and he put it on heaven's mercy seat. And now he forever abides in the presence of God for us. Not only as our great high priest, but our great sacrifice as well. Read a couple of verses here on the blood of Christ and then we'll, we'll move on. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9.22. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's Hebrews 10.14. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7. Colossians 1.7 says pretty much the same thing, I believe. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. And here's the big one. Hebrews 9, 12-14. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. This is so much more weighty than what we usually acknowledge it as such. Real quick, I want to do three things about communion here in the passage. Communion is not just for the past in remembrance of what's been done. It's not just for right now, but it's also for the future. It has past, present, and future implications. Past, you see in the passage, it says, in remembrance of me. We can look at the atonement as previously described. We can also look at the Passover meal, which is what they were actually celebrating when this was done and when Jesus spoke these words. Passover was a time in Egypt when God was going to destroy the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. And God tells the Hebrews that they shall slay a lamb, and they shall eat its flesh, and they shall take its blood, and they shall put it on the lintel of the doorpost. And when the destroyer comes through Egypt, if he looks at the door and he sees the blood, he'll pass over the house where we get the name Passover meal. Jesus is our Passover because when God sees his blood on us as a seal, then death shall not come unto us. That, interestingly enough, the Alliance Fourfold Gospel, Jesus as our Savior. It has present implications as well. As often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. In present, there's the aspect of Jesus as our sanctifier and the aspect of Jesus as our healer. Later on in the passage, it talks about people who are not discerning the Lord's body. 
and by not discerning the Lord's body, they take sickness, judgment, damnation unto themselves. Many of them are sick, many of them are weak, and some have even died because they irreverently took of communion. It only makes sense if you flip that by deductive reasoning and people have died and are sick because they're irreverence in taking communion, that communion has the aspect of God as our healer. We know through the passages that we read in Hebrews that through the blood we are sanctified and we are being sanctified through the working of the Spirit. So Jesus is our sanctifier, but also Jesus is our healer. A lot of theologians and scholars call this the meal that heals. And through our reverence and our constant remembrance of the Lord's death, we have the ability to partake in that healing. The future implications is that until He comes, our coming King, that's the fourth aspect of the fourfold gospel. Not really going to go super deep there. But I just want you to know that communion is not just for the past, it's not just for right now, but it's also for the future. It's for all three. It's a meal and a remembrance and a sacrament that is past, present, and future implications. We remember the past and the things that God has done for us. And because we see what God has done, then we know what we are able to do and what He will do for us now. And we know what shall be done in the future. And before we have our service and serve communion, I want to do two myths real quick. I want to debunk two myths about communion. There's a strong Catholic presence in this area. Two myths. The first is what's called transubstantiation. It's a huge word. Basically, the Catholics will preach and they will administer that when you take communion, even though the, the molecular substance of the bread and the molecular substance of the grape juice or the wine don't change, they believe that spiritually that becomes the actual flesh of Christ and spiritually that becomes the actual blood of Christ. That is a myth. That is not biblically based. These are done as representatives of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and we partake of them as representatives, as tokens to acknowledge what He has done for us. The second is that your sin forbids you to take communion. People look at the unworthily in King James or in an unworthy manner in the English Standard Version and they say, well, I've got a little bit too much sin in my life. I'm struggling with this bondage that I can't overcome. That is not what this is talking about. If you tried to get yourself to a place where you would be righteous enough to take communion, you'd never take it. There's no amount of righteousness that you can attain to ever make you worthy to take of this sacrament. It's talking about reverence. This morning I asked Faith, after praying about this service, I asked Faith, I said, if you had to sell somebody one thing about communion, you couldn't go through and explain the whole process of communion and then say something. They knew absolutely nothing and you had to tell them one thing about communion, what would that one thing be? If you wanted to tell them that the bread was the body, that's all you could tell them. If you wanted to tell them that the wine was the blood, that's it. If you wanted to tell them that it was a reminder of the Lord's death, that's it. Only one thing, what would you tell them? And she said, do it reverently. People have literally died. It's right there in Scripture. Literally died from taking this irreverently. And I'm not saying you have to be all mystical about it. Just know and understand what you're doing. You are literally discerning the Lord's body, the Lord's blood, and partaking of that. You're either going to do it and bring life, or you're going to do it and bring death. Condemnation or sanctification. Reverence. Reverence, reverence, reverence. I said I wasn't going to be long. I want to conclude the way that I began. Psalm 23, 
you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. It also, not adding or taking away for scripture, but we could look at this, you also prepare a table for me in the presence of my friends, in the presence of my family, in the presence of my fellow church members. This is the table that he prepared for us. This is the sacrament that he gave to us. And I would just like for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Faith, if you want to get ready and start playing. Adam and Dewey, if you guys want to go ahead and come up.